Yeah, it sounds like it did. I had to do a full-blown call NASA and <laughs> and uh, fix everything. God, what a mess. <laughs> Hey everybody, and welcome to the Pre-Accident Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Gonklin. Ooh, that was fancy sounding. Wasn't that fancy sounding? And today, of course, like every other time we get together, we're going to have some dang fun. Uh, you can pretty much guarantee the fun's going to happen. It's going to be fun galore. Um, and so that's a promise. And once I make a promise, I'm into it. That's all that matters. So how's it going? So my life is grand, uh, and everything seems to be zooming along at breakneck speed which is probably a plus for me. Um, I've started uh, my kind of annual international loop. I do a couple New Zealands this year. So you guys in New Zealand uh, and some a couple Australias. So I'll see New Zealand and Australia. Uh, so I can't even wait to see you guys. But currently I think I'm in Qatar hanging out with my Qatar friends and gang. So that should be, I should have good stories, maybe egg related stories. Who knows? You never know how that's going to work out. Other than that though, um, how are you? Good? Things plugging along? I know this is, um, at least for me, I like this whole transition period when, when we sort of break from, we start moving into, well, you know, it's, it's warmer and you can hang out more outside. And I like that a lot actually, because, you know, I am the father of the outdoor TV. Yeah, oh, that's me, the outdoor TV, the news porch, as my friends have taken to calling it, which drives me crazy. So I always kind of wonder what happens. Today's podcast is a great one. You're going to listen to Daryl Brister. And if you don't know Daryl, uh, it's a good chance to know him. He's a, he's a, he's a Midwest guy. He's an Oklahoma guy, uh, oil and gas background, but lots of experience with worker competency, which I think is actually well, I don't think. I, I happen to know it's a relatively important uh, topic for all of us. And he really wraps his worker competency discussion nicely in thinking about kind of the new set of workers that are coming into our workplace. So there's no question that there's a giant skill brain. And some industries have had to deal with this a little bit earlier than others. Utility guys, man, um, a lot of great people are retiring out and a lot of knowledge is just leaving you. And so we've got that knowledge transferal problem or, or question or challenge maybe is a better word. And you have to think, of how, we, how are we going to move this knowledge so that the new people have the benefit of all the mistakes and learnings that the old people carry with them all the time? And that's what Daryl is looking at and thinking about a lot. And, and he, um, he really encouraged me to have this conversation with him. So I did. Uh, you know, I tried to get out of it, as I do with every conversation, but he was very persistent, stayed on me, and uh, I think we got a, a pretty good little conversation around it. It's definitely going to be newsy. You're going to learn a lot about this idea of competency um, and, and competency to a standard, and really, he, he, he threads it nicely with the fact that the new workers bring a, a whole new set of challenges, and it's something we're all thinking about. So sit back and relax. This will be a great uh, – you'll like this pod. It's going to be a fun pod for sure. Um, this is Daryl Brister and, and myself chatting about work in the transition period from the mechanistic age to the systems age. Here we are. This is the podcast. Well, I don't think. It was February 12, 1996. The plant blew up. I was the first responder. 
One of the guys that I had actually been training and working with uh, died in my hands while we waited on Life Flight, and that that rocked my world, you know, because yeah. I considered myself highly trained, highly skilled. You know, we had a we actually had a company baseball team at the time, and everybody got their name on the back of their jersey except me. And of course, in quotes, they put "safety guy" because I was the guy always hollering and screaming about it's not safe. We need to do more and. Uh, so I was trying to feel my way through and learning about safety. And, um, ultimately it took, uh, this gentleman's death to really begin to change the culture within my company at the time. And, uh, that's what leaped me over into competency management and understanding that training alone was not the answer. You need to prove your performance in the workplace, uh, show that you can demonstrate your safety skill, your technical skill to a recognized standard, not just somebody else's opinion who thinks, yeah, Daryl can go run the plan. It'll be fine. So (laughs) where's where's that taking you now? What are you thinking now? Well, so, uh, you know, I, I, Ended up becoming uh, almost a, a competency specialist. I guess I technically I did become a competency specialist for my global company. Ended up flying the world my last year with them. I had close to 700,000 air miles going to all of our sites globally, implementing competency management in the operations from a safety and technical standpoint. We started this company almost five years ago to help the next generation. And so we're doing it. Everything we do is from a safety and technical skills perspective, helping companies develop competency standards that says, here's what you need to know. Here's what we need to be able to see you do. And then explaining the why factor in there as to why they're doing these things, why that's important. And we really do, we we tell ourselves we're talking about next generation workforce. So the millennials, right? So you're looking at what? almost 79 millennials that are coming into the workforce. You've got a 84 million baby boomer generation that's retiring, started retiring in 2010 and 11. Um, And so there's quite a void, a vacuum that's being left. So when you think about what you're doing from a safety different standpoint, what I'm trying to do from a safety technical competency standpoint, it's going to be imperative that we've got to get things in place to help this next generation because you're losing that capacity of competent people that are out there in industries. If it's oil and gas, it's really high hazard, high consequence, big impacts to the environment, big impacts to to people and equipment. Uh, But if you're a small manufacturing company tucked away in Alabama or somewhere in Texas, um, you're probably not going to kill a lot of people, but at the same time, we don't want to hurt people. And then, of course, productivity goes down. Uh, You can't keep your machines repaired. Uh, then you can't produce your widget, your product, and get it out to market. So it has a real knock-on effect. Um, and we're finally starting to get some traction here in the U.S. If you look at the data, you've traveled the world like I have. Uh, Canada, Scandinavian countries, U.K., Europe, Australia, all moved to competency management and occupational roles where safety and technical skills are required probably 25-plus years ago, Todd. Uh, But here in America, all we do is, quote, train people, right? And the reason we've been able to do that successfully is you've had such a large capacity of people in the workplace. So, for example, when I started out with my company years ago, we were going to do an overhaul on the compressor. Uh, We were blowing the compressor down. I didn't want to look like I was standing around. My daddy taught me to stay busy and 
you know, keep my hands moving. And so I went to close a valve and this older gentleman grabbed my arm. He said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm just going to close that valve right there. He said, son, if you close that valve right now, you're going to kill me and you both. Now, I didn't know, but what happens to my son, Ethan, when he's out there working in the industry somewhere and he goes to close that valve and there's no older person, competent person there to say, hey, hold on. <laughs> We're not quite ready to close that valve yet. Well, then I get a phone call or there's been an impact, uh, something's happened. So how do we help give back to this next generation to, I, I love it, right? I think it's a fresh palette, Todd. What you're doing from a safety differently standpoint, instead of blaming workers, how do we help engineer uh, risk out of the system? How do we put better controls in place? And then how do we teach that to this next generation um, who actually won't FaceTime? You know. Uh, if you look, I don't know if you're familiar with the book, The Fourth Turning. Have you ever heard of that? By, no, I don't. I don't know it. This book by Hal or Hal and Strauss called The Fourth Turning. And it looks at generational era. So here's the era that you're living in. You're living in an era that's unraveling, like in the early 1900s, World War One is happening. Uh, the civic generation comes into play. And then you look at their children and what they're coming out of, how it moves into a more um, crisis type situation where you have to be adaptive. That moves into a highly economical situation where you have these ideal situations where people grow and prosper. And then it moves into this awakening period of social change, culture change. And so that's the fourth turn, right? So these and the generational things that move in these four different corners and how it impacts society, culture, I call it heart set, mindset, skill set. And that's what we're trying to do is help the millennial generation, next generation, think about the heart set, mindset, skill set they need in operational type jobs that are out there across America, in other places, other countries. And then, of course, being able to develop their own skill, their own competency, but to a recognized standard versus just trying to figure it out themselves. So we hurt less people. We we do less damage to the environment equipment that we're working with. So that's, that's the premise of what we're trying to do anyway. How do we take that information and use it? How do we, how do we create organizations that are successful in creating competency? Cause I can't tell you how important, for instance, risk competency is. We don't want workers that are afraid of risk or that are bad with risk or don't understand risk. We want workers who are actually incredibly risk competent. How do we create a, a, an environment where they can be successful? Well, I think the biggest thing, Todd, is being able to educate the boomers who are currently in a position um, that control this, right? So how do we help educate the leaders that we currently have in place why competency is so important, especially from a risk standpoint, right? Uh, the way that young people are exposed in the workplace, especially when you have a diminishing workforce that's been highly capable, highly competent, and helped the companies to be successful. Uh, what I have found with all of our clients and others when I speak at conferences, uh, people are very intrigued by this. Uh, again, I go back to something I said earlier. In America, all we do is train people. And then we don't hold them accountable once they get into the workplace to actually demonstrate that they know and understand whether it's a safety requirement or whether it's a technical skill that's required to operate in a plant or in a factory or a warehouse. 
so there's a, I believe there's a whole lot of education that still needs to go on with the power brokers that are in place to really understand from a risk management standpoint, the human factor side. What you deal with, I think, really well in helping management to understand is the cause is not necessarily the individual as it is the systems and the failures that happen in the systems and how we, the workers, come into play and without even realizing it, we trigger things at times, right? Um, Absolutely. And that, and that can set off an event. It's a real educational process. Um, it's starting to catch on here in the U.S., Todd. Uh, last year, I spoke at nine different conferences. I've already been asked to speak at a couple more this year. Uh, people are trying to understand, hey, why isn't my training working? Matter of fact, I get a lot of uh, inquiries into, can you help us in our training? And I'm like, well, we could enhance your training, but I don't think that that's really the root cause of what your issues are. It's more of you train, but then you're not going out into the workplace and actually saying, okay, demonstrate for me, you know what you're doing. And from a legal standpoint, we should be doing that to approve standards, not to somebody's personal opinion. I state that over and over. It's so important to have uh, I call them competency standards, but at least procedures, practices in place that says, here's what you need to know, here's what you need to do in the job, uh, and then having qualified and trained assessors who will actually be Switzerland, be neutral, and actually measure individuals as to what they need to know and what they need to do based on those standards. And then, of course, helping companies actually document that. And, and again, one of the things that we see is this actually helps create um, – these managers, these people running the business today want some kind of a glue, some kind of magnet that will make this next generation stick. Um, I, I love statistical data. One of the statistics about our millennial generation is I think they're highly misunderstood. They get a lot of bad press. Um, one of the biggest things is, is that, you know, millennials are not job hoppers. They're actually boss shoppers. Uh, they're looking for the right kind of managers and bosses that will listen to them, give them the opportunity. Uh, and one of the things that will help them stick is help them develop. Um, you go back to that book, The Fourth Turning. Uh, boomers, we're a big FaceTime generation, right? In other words, Todd, if I can't see you working, you must not be doing anything. And now we have a millennial generation that wants flexibility in the workplace, uh, doesn't necessarily uh, want to have to be watched like a hawk 24-7, but they do actually want FaceTime to learn and to develop. And if we can do that, and we'll do that in the workplace, I think that's some of the glue and some of the magnets that help stick them to your organization. Because, again, statistically, they're leaving between year one and year two right after you've made your safety training investment, your technical skills development. You've done those core things to help them be productive and work unsupervised. And then they turn around and leave because uh, they feel like they're being fit into a really tight box and they don't feel like there's any way out. So we have to think differently uh, in that regard to help managers understand why the competency and the risk exposure is so big, especially with them losing my generation in the workforce. But it strikes me when you say that, that the onus, at least initially, is on the organization to create that capacity. Yeah, I fully agree. That's exactly right. So just like an organization will have an HSC team to help drive uh, safety and reliability from that standpoint, uh, companies are going to have to move to competency management teams. Uh, your bigger organizations, uh, 
um, have that, especially in hazardous environments like oil and gas, where most of my operation career came from, have competency management teams in place globally uh, to deal with the risk that is out there and what individuals are exposed to. Uh, again, think about it. Uh, when Admiral Rickover helped develop the nuclear navy, uh, he argued vehemently in Congress about the risk that uh, you're going to have to have highly skilled people who are competent, who are assessed and know what they're doing. And of course, it took things like Three Mile Island and Chernobyl for us to finally realize, well, maybe we should have proven competent operators in a nuclear plant. Same thing happened in aviation after all of the crashes. You look at what happened with Korean Air uh, and then having to assess uh, the people that are flying. It's why uh, Captain Sully was able to land in the Hudson River, because now in aviation for the last 50 plus years, we've been requiring competency assessment in the workplace. Uh, my good friend Jim Weatherby, five-time uh, space shuttle astronaut. Uh, again, there's no chance for failure in space, as Gene Krantz talked about. Failure's not an option, and as a result, you have to be highly competent. You talk to Jim and the rigorous competency assessment that every astronaut goes through before being allowed to punch up into space. Uh, but uh, overwhelming majority of, of businesses out there, Todd, where safety is required every day and we have to be diligent with it. Technical skills are required, the know-how to operate and do the jobs we're asking them to do. And yet we just kind of give them a little bit of training and we throw them out there. So you're right. The onus is on the organization to develop competency management teams, people who know and understand this from an occupational standpoint. We've Typically, we've had a lot of competency development for the professional ranks from an engineer to analyst to others in management. Uh, but we, for the most part, just ignored our workforce uh, and we train uh, and we assume that training works. And why it's not working anymore, it's nothing really wrong with the training, is just that we don't have the capacity in the workplace anymore to, like I said earlier, reach out and grab somebody's arm and say, hold on, son. Not right now. Let's wait a few more minutes, and here's why. So if you were to give an organization uh, a piece of advice to get started on this, what advice would you give them? Oh, that's a good question. So I think in the main, um, they would need to really start looking holistically at their organization from, uh, from the occupational worker. It starts with the leadership. Uh, how do we change the heart set mindset of what I call their first level leader? Um, in my time, uh, it was an unwritten rule that you had to make 10 years in operations and leadership was watching you throughout that whole time. And on 10 years in one day, when you get called into the office, I literally thought I was getting fired that day. And I asked the plant manager, I said, what's going on? What did I do wrong? And he said, calm down. Nothing's going on. Nothing's wrong. You did, you did fine. And ultimately they gave me my first promotion. And I tell you that story to say that we now are very lucky if we can five years before we're having to uh, promote our younger generation into a role of leadership. And then most companies don't even do anything to actually develop the skills. I look at seven core skills, competencies that they need as a leader. So I think in the short term, they need to get the leadership answer right, uh, developing those frontline leaders, helping them develop their competency so they know how to work with the people that are now under their purview to train to develop to make sure they follow the policies the practices the procedures and then more holistically begin to look at 
what is competency management? What does that look like for us? What do we have in place that we could utilize? Because a lot of companies have a lot of the good policies, practices, procedures, Todd, uh, but then utilizing those to actually do assessment in the workplace. Uh, one of the things that's really taken an uptick for us is having some of my team come in that have that are trained and qualified assessors in in particular disciplines like a mechanic or an electrician or an automation controls type person or an operator, and then actually go in and assess their workforce just to understand where their gaps may be. Uh, I'll give you a quick story. Uh, one of the potential clients we're looking and working with right now, uh, they asked us to come in. They Their senior mechanics had retired, so they moved the next most senior person up into the lead mechanic position, and all of a sudden, they can't keep the reliability of their equipment up and running. And, of course, what they found out, no fault to this new lead mechanic because the company had not done its it's duty to make sure that he understood everything. They just assumed he did and then put him into that position. What they found out was there were really some gaps there. And he had been leaning heavily on the, the lead that had just retired uh, and then struggling himself to take over that lead position. Uh, and I'll stress, no fault of his own. The company needs to, companies need to move beyond just assuming somebody knows something to actually helping, supporting them, making the right investment into them. Because in the in general, and you've said this, and matter of fact, I've quoted you so many times, you've got workers that are out there being safe right now while you and I are talking. Those plants are running safely. Those operations are running smoothly and safely. And they're doing it on the fly. They're making it up as they go in most cases. Um, but companies should do a better job of really helping to develop the skill set of the people they're putting responsibility on to lead the workforce to be out there. And I think that's the message. And I think the, the message is you can hear this two ways. You can hear that workers need to be more competent, or you can hear that companies need to create successful ways to have more competent workers. Shoo! Take a breath. Well, holy cow, Daryl. Woo! Man, I love commitment to anything, and I love passion. And Daryl's got both commitment and passion. Was, I couldn't even get a word in edgewise. There, I did. I did there kind of at the end, kind of. No, I'm teasing. It was great, and uh, Daryl had lots to say, and um, he's pretty committed in what he has to say. And I like the way he's thinking. And I'm curious what you're thinking after hearing it, because to me, this this generational change for bad or for good in theory and practice if it's all sort of dime store psychology or real research, this generational change is happening whether we want it to or not. I mean, I don't think we get a lot of choice in this. And how that impacts our ability to do reliable and safe operations without question is an important topic to think about. And worker competency, worker expertise is a word I'm more comfortable with, but I really thought, Daryl, I learned a ton. I mean, he had so much to say. And he said it in such an eloquent way. He's, he's committed, and there's nothing wrong with that. And if, you're, if you've got those kind of competency questions, that's exactly the kind of cat you want to go to and, and ask questions. I mean, that, that's, that's where it all happens. Um, remarkable, a super interesting podcast. I enjoyed it immensely, and I learned a ton. In fact, my brain hurts now. I'm having brain cramps. But luckily, I have some of that new foam they're trying to sell on TV for cramps, and I've got it on my head. I look good. You should see me. I look amazing. That, my friends, 
is the end of the pod for today. Um, but we're going to keep marching on. There's plenty of exciting stuff. I'm really pleased so far this year with the variety and diversity of topics. It's been great. The feedback I got on the Metrics podcast, holy cow, you guys really like Ned Harris. You like him a ton. So we're going to have to have him back on. That's just all there is to it. Until then, though, thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Keep keep plugging along. Um, subscribe if you get a chance. Write a review if it's good. But more importantly, just be a part of the conversation. We are making some tracks, baby. It's actually working. Until then, as you know, learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. And for goodness sakes, be safe.